Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active word of God, his two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Misery Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, April 29th, we're studying 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-11. to St. Peter begins his second epistle with a mini-sermon in order to assure us that Christ has, by his divine power, given us all things needed for life and godliness, so that we might live as Christians while we wait for the coming of our Lord's eternal kingdom. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us the Reverend Dr. Curtis Giese. Dr. Giese serves as professor of religion at Concordia University, Texas. He's also the New Testament editor for the Concordia Commentary series from Concordia Publishing House and the author of the commentary on the epistles of 2 Peter and Jude and forthcoming commentary on the book of James. Dr. Giese, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Oh, thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you. So we are starting 2 Peter today. We're just coming out of 1 Peter. And it's always helpful, I think, to do some introductory work on these epistles as we get started. So let's answer some of those basic questions that you ask about books of the Bible today about 2 Peter before we dig into the text. Let's start with author. Dr. Giese, who is the author of 2 Peter? It is the Apostle Peter, uh, like the most prominent apostle among the 12, who spoke very often in the New Testament, who is a great speaker at uh, the event of Pentecost, and who is the author of First Peter and also of Second Peter, uh, a witness to great events in the life of Jesus and also uh, afterwards of his resurrection as well. And he speaks about one of those events, namely being present at the Transfiguration. So it's the prominent Peter, apostle, whom we've come to know in the message of the New Testament. Now, at the beginning of 1 Peter, Peter identified the churches to whom he was writing. He mentioned the elect exiles of the dispersion. He said they were in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. In my reading of the epistle, I didn't see any particular churches named here. Is he writing to the same churches, different churches? Who, who are his recipients of this epistle? It appears to be written to the same Christian individuals as First Peter. Uh, one great bit of evidence for that comes in Second Peter chapter 3, where he says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Uh, so that is a, a prominent bit of evidence that uh, uh, supports that. In the beginning of the book of Second Peter, although he doesn't specify the geographical locations, which is a little bit rare in, in Hellenistic writing. He does speak about their identity. He indeed calls them to those who receive the faith equal to ours and the righteousness from our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So he speaks about who they are in Christ rather than identifying the geographical location. He did that in the first letter. Now, last with the last letter, when we're talking about the date of, of this epistle, and, and I suppose it kind of depends on what you do with the date of 1 Peter, mm-hmm. when, when would you place these two epistles, and, and where is Peter likely? Uh, well, it's, he's known to be active in Rome, and very possibly the uh, book of 1 Peter uh, was written in the early 60s, and 2 Peter, more likely several years after that, somewhere up until the year 65 AD, uh, the, the year appears that St. Peter was martyred under the Emperor Nero. In the book of First Peter, he speaks uh, about uh, his impending death. Uh, he seems convinced that that's going to happen, so it puts probably pretty close to that uh, date of 65 for the writing of the book of Second Peter. Whereas again, uh, it need to be after First Peter because of this note that I just read in Second Peter 3 that uh, there is a previous letter, but also there is the relationship to the book of Jude. Second Peter chapter 2 has significant overlap with the book of Jude, and many scholars, myself included, uh, would assert that Peter may have drawn from the book of Jude, and that book of Jude also appears to have been written by Jude, a half-brother of our Lord, in the early 60s A.D. 
So those factors give us an indication of when Second Peter was written, uh, also in relationship to First Peter and Jude. Is is Peter perhaps in prison as he writes? It sounds like, and this comes in the text we'll look at tomorrow, but it sounds like Peter thinks that that maybe he's getting close to death in this epistle. Is he is he perhaps in prison? Does it seem that it's as pretty close to the time that he dies when he writes this? Uh, that is possible. Uh, just uh, looking at the book of First Peter, or just read the. I'm sorry, Second Peter. As he describes his situation, and this, verse 12, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in the body, to stir you up by way of remembrance, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So that his death does appear. Uh, imminent, and uh, he knows that, and he brings the Christians to remembrance that he writes to. That word remember or remembrance is very prominent, uh, apparently because he knows that at least his uh, uh, proclamation that he's given to them this life so far will come to an end soon, so he calls them to remembrance of what he has proclaimed to them and remembrance of the gift of Christ that they've been, gifts of Christ that they've been given in baptism. So there, in those verses that you just read, there's a bit of uh, the occasion for Peter to write, to bring these things to remembrance, knowing that he may be dying soon. What other occasions does it, does it seem brought about the writing of this epistle? Yeah, there's a bit of overlap in situation with Jude, uh, both in uh, literary contents as well as occasion. Jude was writing uh, to Christians who were dealing with false teachers who were causing danger and uh, trying to lead them astray, false teachers from outside of the congregation. Peter instead appears to be uh, addressing apostates who are leading people astray, trying to lead people astray from the Christian congregation there. So some who were uh, previously the family of Christ became apostates, and the major tenet of what they're asserting involves a denial of Christ's second coming and the subsequent judgment. So there's, they're asserting a lack of a, accountability, uh, a lack of uh, application of, of God's law, uh, because they don't think there's going to be a coming judgment, that God does not intervene in this world. They base their arguments on uh, anecdotal evidence that nothing seems to have changed since creation. So they assert that nothing will change in the future as well, that God is distant from his world. He does not intervene. It appears to be divine inactivity and ineffectiveness. So they reject the Lord who has bought them. Uh, but also, uh, since then, they don't see any intervention of God in his world. Uh, they are rejecting uh, words of law, any strictures, any um, morality specifically. So because they see that there is freedom in what Christ has done for them, they assert an unbridled immorality as an acceptable expression of Christianity. So uh, they assert that there is freedom also in one's sexuality be used as one wishes, and they're trying to entice others away into that as well. With that false teaching being prominent, the occasion for Peter writing this second epistle, what themes do we see him emphasize to give the truth in the midst of that false teaching? He definitely emphasizes the person and work of Christ, uh, that he is God and Lord who came to this world, intervened, and uh, uh, through his saving work, uh, we are brought back into the family of God. He emphasizes the divinity of Christ and multiple instances in this small epistle, and that he will certainly come again uh, to judge those who have rejected him. And he brings forth Old Testament examples of the certainty of God's judgment, and uh, that Christ will indeed come in glory. And actually, he uses the uh, transfiguration event where he was a witness as an assurance, an attestation of his glorious coming. Uh, so emphasizes the certainty of, of judgment, of divinity of Christ, uh, the certainty of uh, those who are of the family of God, that they are kept safe in him. And he emphasizes 
uh, virtuous response to uh, one's baptism in Christ, uh, that one is moved to do what is excellent, uh, aspire to higher things, aspire to uh, actions, uh, a lifestyle that glorifies God with the use of our bodies, the use of our will. What overlaps do you see between First Peter and and Second Peter? Having spent just like I said, of several weeks now in First Peter, some of the thing, and I, I've not studied Second Peter quite as closely yet, but some of the things that you know you're, you've mentioned baptism coming up, that was a big theme in First Peter. It seems there's some overlap there. First Peter ended really on a note of. Peter talking a lot about the second coming of Christ. That seems to be a pretty big theme here in Second Peter. Are there other overlaps that you see between these two epistles? Uh, First Peter did emphasize the certainty of the salvation that they've been given in Christ, uh, a gift in baptism. Uh, that's indeed there as well. Uh, or also uh, the person work of Christ, being that he is the true Son of God. First uh, Peter, Peter speaks about Christ as the stone which the builders rejected has become the capstone. So the divinity of Christ is emphasized there in First Peter, as also in the uh, book of Second Peter, just a, a few ways in which Christ's divinity is emphasized there. For example, in Second Peter 1, 1, he speaks about uh, Christians being recipients of the faith in the righteousness from our God and Savior Jesus Christ. There, it's referred, both of those terms, all those terms are referring to Christ because there's only one Greek article. So it says, when it says God and Savior Jesus Christ, that is speaking solely about Jesus. He is both God and Savior and the Christ, namely the promised Messiah. And he says in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, uh, grace and peace are multiplied to the recipients in the knowledge of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there equality of the Father and the Son, uh, are also in 1.3. His divine power has granted us all things for life and godliness through the knowledge of the one who called us by his glory and excellence. So, uh, indeed, the divinity, uh, the identity of Christ as the Son of God who took on humanity is an emphasis in both. Also, as you'd indicated, the uh, the Christ, the, the second coming of our Lord Jesus is prominent in both especially in Second Peter, where it appears that that truth is being threatened, that uh, will not intervene, and that there is not a judgment or accountability. Uh, so those are some aspects of overlap between those two epistles of Peter. How would you uh, provide the structure of the epistle as a whole? We're going to look at just the first 11 verses today, but thinking about the letter as a whole, how would you, what's, and I know it's, it's sometimes outlining epistles is not always as straightforward as we'd like it to be, but, but how would you set it out for us in, in large chunks? Yeah, first of all, there is the apostolic greeting in chapter one, verses one through two, uh, then the next section one could uh, identify as confirming and remembering God's gifts in Christ. So that word confirm, uh, one has given, been given great gifts, and so our life is a response to that. Uh, I like one description of uh, Christ, the Christian life is getting used to one's baptism. Uh, so having been brought into uh, the family of God, having been baptized into his death and resurrection, our life confirms that gracious identity in the gifts and also remembering those gifts as well. Uh, just the section of 1, 3 through 11 appear to be in the format of an opening sermon. Just as in a sermon, one uh, emphasized the gifts that we've been given in Christ, uh, then the life that flows from that. Uh, he then speaks about Christ's second coming, and the uh, assurance of that, the great comfort that that is for us as we await, uh, await the resurrection and new creation. Uh, so that sermon is something that begins uh, chapter one. And then chapter two emphasizes a warning against the false teachers uh, who have turned from the Christian faith and uh, what they've done. And, and Peter emphasized there will be a day of accountability just as there was in the Old Testament. He brings back, uh, brings up examples from the Old Testament, such as uh, Noah or the fallen angels uh, or the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He also then speaks about the devastating effects of these false teachers and their apostasy, that they are preying on those who are weak. And then chapter 3, 
Peter emphasized the certainty of Christ's second coming and the implications for Christians. Uh, it is uh, indeed a source of hope, something that one looks to, but indeed for those who reject him, uh, there is a word of warning uh, for them. Okay. He speaks about also the nature of uh, the end of uh, this age, uh, where there is uh, uh, essentially disintegration of the present corrupted world and the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. And then the, at the end of chapter three, uh, there are closing remarks. Uh, Paul express, I'm sorry, Peter expresses his eagerness for Christ's second coming and encouragement to live in what they've been given and be on guard against those who would deceive you, who would try to lead you away from Christ. And then there is a, a including, uh, concluding doxology of praise to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has rescued us. Before, so just, uh, go ahead. Well, I should say before before we started talking today, you, you mentioned that sometimes Second Peter is an overlooked book in the New Testament, and I'm probably mm-hmm. guilty of that myself. Why why should we not overlook Second Peter? What does Second Peter have to offer us as Christians? Yeah, first of all, just uh, touching upon what you said, it's often overlooked. Because First Peter is longer and more prominent, and uh, it has just a wonderful uh, attestation of what Christ has done, has made us a, a part of his building, the church. And uh, so also, in comparison to other New Testament books, Second Peter uh, does not have the prominence of uh, articulating gift of salvation as Galatians does, or Romans, especially in its longer proclamation of that. It doesn't go into the depth and detail about Christ's second coming as a book like Thessalonians, but it has, uh, in a shorter uh, span of of space, a wonderful uh, proclamation of all these teachings of what Christ has done for us to save us. being brought into his family in baptism, uh, the gift of the second coming of Christ. So it's less renowned, it's shorter, it's often overlooked because of its small size, but it's something to read and benefit from because it includes so many teachings of Holy Scripture encapsulated in just one small book. I'm looking forward to our journey through the book as a whole and our text for today. So let's go ahead and, and jump in. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our text for today. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Dr. Gizzi, one thing that stands out right away is the name that Peter gives himself here. He calls himself Simeon. Peter. I recall Jesus using the word Simon or the name Simon, and we see that in the Gospels. Here we get Simeon Peter. Where where is Simeon Peter coming from, and and why both names here? Yeah, very interesting. This is the only New Testament book where a dual uh, name is used, where two names are used uh, for the author to introduce himself. Indeed, more typically, it's Simon Peter. However, Simeon 
is a more literal translation of the Hebrew version of it. And the only other time that uh, this specific name is used regarding Peter is in the book of Acts. Hmm. So here, Peter may be emphasizing that he is the apostle to the nations, using his more Hebraic names. Namely, he is proclaiming Christ to those of uh, Jewish background, brought to Christianity. And Peter is his more Greek name, so he also writes to those of Gentile background. And indeed, the contents of the book of Second Peter seem to affirm that with his heavy usage, significant usage of the Old Testament, and yet there are significant Hellenistic characteristics in this book as well, such as the virtue lists uh, that you read that are provided, and uses of words that are nowhere else in the New Testament that are significant terms in uh, Greek culture. So this may be uh, Peter saying that he is the uh, apostle uh, writing to the nations as he begins this letter. The first epistle of Peter was saturated with the Old Testament as well, and and we talked about you know his audience there perhaps being Gentile in nature, and yet he really emphasizes the Old Testament, and he even uses very Israelite terms to talk about the people of God. You know, he calls them the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people belonging to God, hearkening back to the Old Testament ways of speaking about Israel. I mean, that, that, that kind of same combination here of Peter being the apostle to all the nations, the, the church that is in Christ, I think that, that fits. And it's, it's interesting to see him do that even with a dual name, Simeon Peter. What about the titles or the offices that he ascri- or that he says are, are his? He's a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the term apostle, a familiar title for those who are the closest followers of Jesus, called to be uh, in the 12, the closest 12, and by the authority that Christ gives them, they spoke the apostolic message to speak authoritatively on behalf of Christ. And this is an opposition to the opponents, the apostates who do not speak with the authority of Christ. So here he says that he speaks definitively and with the uh, authority of Christ that he gives him against those who would uh, speak an opposite message. So he specifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now there is debate on the usage of that word servant. Many state that it, it might be just a, a word, a term of humility. He is <clears throat> a servant. He is under the authority of Christ, although he speaks authoritatively on behalf of him. Uh, another side asserts that, well, this term servant of Christ in the singular is used by leaders of early Christianity, including Paul, that it might be a somewhat broader uh, term, an office, a high office in the early church within that one office of the holy ministry. Paul uses it regarding himself, so also James and Jude, and it might be a little bit broader uh, office or term because, for example, in Philippians, when Paul begins that letter, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. So although Timothy was not one of the original 12, he may have that somewhat broader office of leadership. So that is, is one position which has been asserted. Also, Old Testament leaders such as David and Moses refer to themselves by this title as well. So some have asserted that uh, this may have been uh, an office in the early church as well, an office of leadership. Why would uh, why would servant, or I think you could translate the Greek word there, slave as well, why would that become an office within the Christian? That seems like an odd office to have in, in a church. Why slave-servant? Well, in uh, their relationship to Christ, they are not uh, ones who have authority apart from him. They serve Christ in what they do. They speak his message, not a message of their own. Uh, they lead the people of God to Christ, and thus they're subservient to his will and actions, uh, proclaiming his safe, sort of saving work. So they're not often their own. They serve Jesus Christ in the uh, manners in which they proclaim and write. Paul, oh, not Paul, Peter. I've done that. Poor, poor Peter. I do that to him, I too. I do that to <laughs> <laughs> So Peter, then, he identifies his recipients, and again, not by the place, but this time he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Goodness, that's a mouthful. What's oh, yeah. How is Peter identifying his recipients here? 
So once again, in First Peter, he speaks about the geographical location, identity of, of where they live. But here he speaks about their identity in Christ, <clears throat> and it is a common one. Whereas Peter claims for himself these offices of authority, servant and apostle, which his recipients do not share. Here he speaks about the commonality in Christ, uh, the gifts that they've received that they do share. So those have received a faith equal to ours in the righteousness from our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So um, here, faith, uh, that is the, uh, the gift through which one receives the righteousness of Christ. Here, righteousness, a gifted status, a status that is declared to them of being pardoned, forgiven, of having received what Christ has won for us. So there, that righteousness, that right standing that is given from outside of us, so a gift from uh, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And once again, there these terms are referring to Jesus. He is God. He is divine. He is of equal substance with the, the equal with the Father. And he is Savior, our rescuer, and his name Jesus, and also the Christ, the promised Messiah. So there is great theology in here. His uh, identity as the Son of God, Savior, having given us the gift of righteousness. And this is received through the gift of faith. And there, Peter says uh, that this is something that we share. It is a faith equal to ours. So an incredible theology there, a confession of Christ and what he gives in his grace to us. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, April 29th. We're studying 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-11 through 11, with Dr. Curtis Giese, professor of religion at Concordia University, Texas, also the author of the commentary on 2 Peter in the Concordia Commentary series. Dr. Giese, prior to the break, we introduced the epistle. We've been looking at verse 1. In verse 2, as this apostolic greeting continues, we hear words that are very familiar to us from 1 Peter in 2 Peter, it reads, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. We heard that in 1 Peter, but then he, he changes it a little bit, the way he phrases it here. He says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What's Peter doing as he wraps up his greeting? So this is a, a wish statement, a wish for blessing to them. And this is a, a respectful way of stating this. May this be done. So that's an indirect way of same, may God bless you, and grace, of course, the undeserved favor of God, and peace, the result of, of a, uh, a right relationship with God that has been given. So a completeness, wholeness in that relationship, he uh, says, may that be made abundant, multiplied for you, and then in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. And as Peter uses the word knowledge, it is a synonym of faith. So in that gift of faith, of whom? Then you look to the object of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So here he's just as in some Pauline letters, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So similar binetarian statement there of the first and second persons of the Trinity. And also, when he speaks about uh, the Lord, uh, that's a significant term there. It's not emphasizing, it's not a law emphasis, uh, not power, but rather his saving work. And I just love the words of Luther on this topic in the large catechism. Uh, so I, I just introduced that. It says, so Lord doesn't have a law connotation. Uh, but rather, as Luther says, if you are asked, what do you believe in the second article concerning Jesus Christ? Answer briefly, I believe that Jesus Christ, true son of God, has become my Lord 
And what is it to become a Lord, Luther asks. It means, Luther says, that he has redeemed me from sin, from the devil, from death, and from all evil. Before this, I had no Lord and King, but was captive under the power of the devil. Let this be the summary of this article, that this little word Lord simply means the same as Redeemer. That is, he who has brought us back from the devil to God, from death to life, from sin to righteousness, and now keeps us safe there. So the emphasis here on uh, the knowledge of God and Jesus, uh, our Lord, their Lord is indeed a, a grace and Redeemer term uh, rather than law. I mean, I'm also reminded of the way that Luther phrases it in the small catechism, too, in the second article, which is, I mean, I think some of the most beautiful words written outside of the Holy Scriptures concerning what Jesus did. I mean, that we confess that Jesus is my Lord who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person. And I mean, he he digs into that same imagery, imagery which actually comes out of First Peter as well, you know, the, the matter of not the gold or silver, but his holy precious blood. That, that was Peter in his first epistle. So, I mean, just that, that wonderful reminder that when we confess Jesus is Lord, certainly we're confessing his, his full divinity and all that means, but we're also Indeed. confessing his, his saving work for us, that this isn't, as you said, it's not a law-based Lord. This is the gospel. This is, this is Christ, our Savior, and, and all of that wrapped up in that little word, Lord. And, and Luther is such a fantastic reminder of that. It's, that's beautiful. We, we could probably spend the whole time talking about that, Dr. Giese. <laughs> but, but we should continue. So let's, let's dig into the, the main body now that he begins in verse 3. Verses 3 through 11 is the remainder of our text. Earlier you said that that's a, a sermon. Where, where, do you, where do you see this as a sermon? What's the structure that he gives us here? Well, it encapsulates uh, what is often typical in early Christian sermons. It begins uh, with the gift of Christ uh, for us. So the gifts of Christ for life and godliness, and specifically in verses 3 through 4, he speaks about Christ's divine power, grants many blessings, uh, even partaking of the divine nature. We probably talk about that. And then by grace, Christians display the virtues that flow from faith and culminate in love. And we'll talk about the significance of that word love. So First of all, salvation, the gifts that we received, and then how those gifts demonstrate themselves in our lives, and then the benefits of these. And then it ends with a a wonderful statement uh, about what we uh, hope for, the final culmination of all these gifts in verse 11. uh, For thus the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. So the hope of the resurrection and new creation culminating that, and that seems to, uh, to be the end of a unit that began with uh, the great gifts of Christ uh, and then great gifts of Christ at his second coming. So that's a typical structure for an early sermon. So this 3 through 11 appears to be uh, a unit of a sermon. And then he goes on uh, with uh, other topics, other great topics, such as the source of the apostolic proclamation and how it validates the teaching about Christ's second coming. So it begins on different topics there. So the first section of this sermon, verses three through four, there's plenty to talk about in each of these sections alone. One thing that stands out to me in verses three through four is that this is this is all gift in verses three through four. His divine power has granted all things. This is a gift. And then again in verse four, by which he has granted to us. So this he he starts the sermon with with gospel, with gift. Take us into this first section of the sermon. Yeah, notice once again at the beginning of verse three there, his divine power. So uh, that is again not power in a law way, but rather his divine power to give, to save. So you emphasize has granted, so that gift given. And notice uh, how all-encompassing that is. He's given us all things uh, for life and godliness. And life there most likely refers to uh, regeneration, the gift of salvation in holy baptism. So there, where there was not life, suddenly through that gift of water in the Word, there is life. And then that works itself out uh, in one's sanctification, in the resulting life, that is here he says, in godliness. So life and godliness uh, through the knowledge of the one who called us by his divine glory and excellence. 
So once again, the word knowledge there, it may refer to the content of the gospel uh, there because he says through that we are called uh, by his own glory and excellence. And once again, uh, gospel terms, uh, actually just re- referring to the book of John, where uh, there John emphasizes when was Jesus hour of glory uh, in his crucifixion. There that was his glorious moment. So he's called us by his glory, uh, by his saving work, and his excellence. So some wonderful grace terms that are there in verse 4. Uh, just fantastic uh, grace terminology. Yeah, I mean, the the with John calling Jesus our, his glory, the hour of his crucifixion glory, a lot of that ties in, I think, with some of the things Peter was doing in his first epistle, where he was talking a lot about the sufferings that the Christian endures, that we follow Christ in those sufferings, through the suffering into into glory. And so, I mean, some some overlaps of the themes there. As, as Peter continues into verse 4, you know, by which this glory excellence, by which he, the Lord, has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You you hinted at this earlier, Dr. Giese, this, this phrase, to become a partaker of the divine nature, I think strikes us as unusual. What, what does that mean, that a Christian becomes a partaker of the divine nature? Yeah, the, first of all, what it does not mean, it does not mean that, become, that we become divine as if we become some way one with the substance of God. That's not what's intended. I'd like to read some words uh, of Luther regarding this and a few uh, additional quotes also from the formula of Concord. Uh, So Luther says regarding this text, he says, but what is the divine nature intended here? It is eternal truth, righteousness, wisdom, everlasting life, peace, joy, happiness, and whatever can be called good. Now, he who becomes a partaker of the divine nature receives all this so that he lives eternally and has everlasting peace, joy, happiness, and is pure, clean, righteousness, righteous, and almighty against the devil, sin, and death. So Luther is here speaking about a restored relationship in Christ. There also, as uh, Paul speaks about uh, baptism in Romans 6, that we are baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ, and thereby we are connected to him. Also, uh, I'm just going to quote the church father's father, Cyril of, of Jerusalem. He also connects it to how we partake of Christ in the Lord's Supper. He says, when his, that is Christ's body and blood, become the tissue of our members, we become Christ's bearers. And as the blessed Peter says, partakers of the divine nature. And then also this uh, connection between believers in Christ uh, has a, uh, the term in systematic theology, the unio mystica, the mystical union of Christ with his church. And also this was a, uh, a part of the discussion, the formula of concord, just a few introductory words. So in harmony with Luther's teaching early in the second century, The formula of Concord of 1580 rightly articulates God's indwelling in us. This indwelling is not equivalent to the righteousness of Christ being credited to us. It is not the indwelling of God that is the cause of our salvation. Rather, this indwelling is a blessed result of justification by grace alone through faith. And here I'm going to quote the formula of Concord uh, for about uh, five sentences here. So there are Lutheran confessors say... We must also explain correctly the discussion concerning the indwelling of God's essential righteousness in us. On the one hand, it is true indeed that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is the eternal and essential righteousness, dwells by faith in the elect who have been justified through Christ and reconciled with God, since all Christians are temples of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who impels them to do rightly. But on the other hand, This indwelling of God is not the righteousness of faith of which St. Paul speaks in various uh, texts and which he calls the righteousness of God on account of which we are declared just before God. This indwelling follows the preceding righteousness of faith, which is precisely the forgiveness of sins and the gracious acceptance of poor sinners on account of the obedience and merits of Christ. Uh, 
so it's just uh, saying there what exactly what Peter indicates here. He says that uh, through these things we become partakers of the divine nature after we have escaped the corruption in the world by sinful desires. So this escape, this uh, being brought into uh, the righteousness that Christ has given us, that is our salvation. And that as a result of that, uh, we receive a benefit of this connection, uh, becoming partakers of divine nature. That is, uh, that is the indwelling of the, the spirit, uh, the unio mystica, that is a blessing for us in Christ. It sounds some of the that initial Luther quote that you read reminded me of of the way Paul talks about the image of of God or the image of yes. Christ being restored in us. Is that and I'm thinking like in Second Corinthians three and four how he talks about being transformed from one glory to the next. Is is that related? Is it maybe just another way of like Peter's way of saying the same thing Paul was saying? Yeah, it would seem so. And as as Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ yeah. who lives in me. So similar language. So yes, the uh, Christ uh, having, uh, yeah, we are part of Christ. We are Christ bearers to the world. Uh, it is he who lives in us. So Peter and Paul say the same things, just in slightly different ways. Sure. So then the next section of the sermon comes in verses five through seven, where Peter begins with faith and he works his way through several virtues, I suppose you might call them, all the way to love. Just in terms of the structure, uh, before we look at the individual words, what's Peter? Peter doing there in verses five through seven? He appears to be uh, adapting a literary technique of the ancient world uh, where he mentions one virtue and another flows out of that and, and another from that, but it appears to differ from that uh, literary device where like you have to master one before the next comes and master that before the next comes and so on. Uh, Paul uses uh, this literary device as well, but it doesn't appear that uh, one has to be mastered before the other. But notice what comes first here uh, in verse 5. And as you said, for this reason, by applying every effort, supply excellence in your faith. So that gift of faith comes first, first that faith that, uh, that relied, that it has its focus on its object, Christ, and what he has done for that. And from that faith, uh, flows other things such as excellence and knowledge here, and knowledge here appears to be a, a wisdom of right living and self-control and so on. So these are all interconnected as Peter describes them, but it's not like one is uh, based upon another and has to be mastered first before the others can come. And uh, indeed, once again, notice that faith is the basis of these, and then the last of these, uh, opposite bookend, is love that appears there. And the word love there is the agape, the sacrificial type of love. And, and Christians can demonstrate that only because they have received that Christ sacrificial love that he has given to us, demonstrated for us in his ultimate sacrifice of the cross. So very significant uh, bookends of faith. That expresses itself, and then love being the culminating term that is given in this list. With the ones that he mentions in the middle, what would you highlight there? Endurance is a very significant one in this epistle of Peter, because the opponents are, are stating, well, uh, God's never going to intervene. There's never going to be a second coming of Christ. His message is not true. So he uh, urges them to express, to show endurance and, and patience. And Peter tells the reason why there is a delay, because Christ wants all uh, to hear this message. Uh, and he wants as many as possible to be brought into that saving relationship with Christ. So it's for a reason of God's patience and his kindness that there is a delay of his coming. So Peter urges them. Uh, to have endurance uh, in this time of waiting when there is difficulty. So indeed, endurance is a, a key term. And while one is enduring, he call, calls them to remember uh, the gifts they've been given and remember uh, their identity in Christ as they live out their lives. This sermon continues in verse 8. It says, 
talking about now, these qualities, if they're yours, they're increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that word knowledge again. How does Peter continue this sermon into verses eight and following? Yeah, in verse eight, so uh, says, uh, as you demonstrate uh, these virtues, uh, literally, they do not make you unprofitable. Uh, that's a a literary uh, tool that's being used at Lytotes, where uh, the opposite is stated to communicate the positive. So they do not make you unprofitable, namely, they make you profitable and uh, fruitful. So faith bears fruit with respect to our knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So their knowledge probably re- likely refers to uh, faith with our Lord Jesus Christ as the object of faith once again. Uh, So their knowledge is that uh, great term that uh, tells our relationship with Christ. Now, in verse 9, he speaks negatively. He, he said, if you have these qualities, then you're, you're, I love that way of speaking. It's it's so, we don't usually speak that way in English, and so it kind of stands out. The ESV, I think, does a decent job. You know, they keep you from being these things. But he, he speaks the negative way. If you lack these things, then, and he uses the image of of how well you see, even to the point of being blind. Uh, what mm-hmm. is he doing in verse 9? Yeah, so if one does not see with the eyes of, of faith, the gift of faith, uh, one is as if a lacking blindness. So blind being the uh, the more uh, negative and short-sighted, uh, a bit less than that. So misguided, but not totally blind with regard to the, uh, the gift of Christ. So uh, speaking about the opponents, that apparently they have forgotten their previous cleansing of sins. They have uh, rejected what the, they've been given in baptism, which is the cleansing of sins. So he urges his readers not to be like those who have become opponents uh, because they are blind in what they do. They have forgotten what they've been given baptism, namely the cleansing of sins. So a wonderful statement of what baptism does here. It is a cleansing. And some of you mentioned the opponents here, and I think earlier as well, some of what's happening here is setting the stage for some of the stuff he's going to talk about in chapter two in terms of the way that opponents don't have these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely the case, uh, that they lack self-control. They lack the knowledge. Rather, they show that they rely on just myths that have no substance to them, uh, that they are ones who are... Uh, would only demonstrate the most base desires of sinful humanity, and in that they try to lead others astray. So in contrast with with uh, uh, excellence, higher things, the uh, wonderful gifts of sacrificial love in Christ, the opponents are the very opposite of that. Uh, they are the lowest because they reflect the base desires of humanity. He concludes this sermon in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, he calls upon his brothers. That's a pretty important word, I think. You know, be diligent in these things, which I, th- I think is such a helpful reminder to us as Christians. This, you know, Be diligent, or hearkening back to the way he talked in the first epistle, be sober-minded, be watchful, you know, be on your guard, keep the, the loins of your mind girded was one of the images he used in First mm-hmm. Peter. You know, this idea of diligence in our Christian life, he continues to emphasize here in Second Peter as well. Yeah, so there, just the term brethren, it's a inclusive term, brothers and sisters, uh, but that is uh, a, a commonality that one has in the family of God. So Peter refers to them as those who are uh, with him and uh, in faith. And so he says, be diligent to confirm. So with our will renewed in Christ, uh, we are encouraged to confirm the gifts that we've been given. So confirm uh, your calling. And in the, in the translation that they use in the commentary that it had the honor of writing, say, be diligent to confirm for yourselves your mm-hmm. calling and election. Uh, the Greek voice there is what's called a middle voice. Uh, that is, a, it's in reference to oneself. In other words, our calling and election, as far as God is concerned, is absolutely certain. It is rock solid because Christ has done it. But here, Peter encourages in our lives and for ourselves to work that out in our life and actions and so that others can see it as well. So it doesn't uh, mean confirm ourselves before God to make our salvation more certain. No, it is certain in Christ, without a doubt. 
But now work that out. Confirm the gift that you've been given in your actions uh, as you live out your life uh, before others as well. So it is affirmation of gifts that are given. In verse 11, Peter points us toward the last day. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. With about three minutes, Dr. Giese, take us into that verse. Help us wrap things up on our text this morning. Yeah, this is a a wonderful end of this sermon where he, as mentioned, spoke about uh, salvation in Christ, how that makes itself manifest in our lives. And then the ultimate comfort of eternal life with Christ. Now, uh, of course, in the Gospels where Christ and John the Baptizer speak about, behold, the kingdom of God has come near. So there is an already of Christians belonging to God's kingdom uh, through baptism and received in faith. But here, Peter speaks about entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this likely... Uh, this is referring to the other side of eternity, of that kingdom we're made a part of, and it likely refers to the gift of the resurrection of the body and the new creation that Peter speaks about a bit later in his epistle. The opponents deny that, deny that he intervenes into this physical world, and Peter here affirms that uh, there is a culmination of God's saving work in Christ. He received his kingdom. We're looking forward to his eternal kingdom, the physical resurrection, and, the, and that creation of that new heavens and new earth. And notice uh, toward the end of verse 11 that uh, uh, this will be richly provided for you. Once again, Peter emphasizes it is gift. It is given to you, not, not something that you earn, attain to, but uh, something that is by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there he also re-emphasizes the titles and nature of Christ. He is our Lord, and we had already visited what uh, Luther, how Luther unpacks that term Lord. It's another word for Savior. He has rescued us, and he also then synonym, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So this verse culminates what he has stated before, and is like a bookend to the beginning where he states, you have been saved by grace, and here uh, speaks about an ultimate salvation that culminates in the gift of the resurrection and new creation that will indeed come by his grace. Reverend Dr. Curtis Giese is a professor of religion at Concordia University, Texas, also the author of the commentary on the epistles of 2 Peter and Jude in the Concordia Commentary series and a forthcoming one on the book of James and the New Testament editor for the whole thing of the Concordia Commentary series, helping us today with 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 11. Dr. Giese, thanks for being our guest today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Second Peter or Jude, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>